Hi, I'm Connor Cyrus, one of the hosts for Vermont Edition. I wanted to let you know that the podcast you're about to listen to has been edited for clarity and brevity. Thanks for listening and enjoy. This is Vermont Edition. I'm Connor Cyrus. Later in the show, we're going to learn about a podcast called 123 Ready Read Review, started by a librarian in Woodstock getting kids to share their excitement of books and telling us about their favorite parts. We'll check in with the host of the podcast and learn more about its imp- about the impact it's made on kids and reading. But first, let's discuss avian flu. According for the Centers for Disease Control, nearly 59 million domesticated fowl, mainly chickens and turkeys, have been affected by avian flu just in the U.S. At the end of last year, 72 wild birds in Vermont were detected to have avian flu. So let's talk about it and what's happening in our state. To help us to sort through all this stuff, our guests today are David Sossville, Wildlife Management Project Manager for Vermont. Fish and Wildlife. David, welcome. Uh, thank you for having us on the show. We also have Dr. Caitlin Levine, Assistant State Veterinarian. Dr. Levine, welcome to the show. Hello. Now, David, I'm going to start with you and just get us, give us a better understanding. You've worked for Vermont Fish and Wildlife. Tell us about your background, particularly your experience with wild birds. Well, um, I'm one of the many wildlife biologists within the state's Fish and Wildlife Department, and we're responsible for managing wildlife species statewide. And so that brings us into looking into diseases that wildlife has and coordinating with our um, Agency of Agriculture and Department of Health and trying to make sure those diseases don't transfer over to domestic animals and and into the human population. And this is probably, I think, the third time in the 23 years I've been back in the state that uh, we've had avian influenza outbreaks. So tell us a little bit about what you've seen in your 23 years of working for fish and wildlife uh, when it comes to these major outbreaks. They tend to have, in the past, have been kind of cyclical. They come through in one year. uh, The virus tends to burn itself out and then uh, it ends and kind of goes dormant for another six to eight years. And then we see it again. This time, it seems um, we're watching it over in in Europe, they went through their second cycle last year. So we're kind of monitoring it with uh, our friends at USDA Wildlife Services and Agency of Agriculture to see if it goes through to a second year. So this will be, we're going into our second spring and it tends to increase with temperature uh, to a certain point. The cooler water temperatures uh, keep the virus around, whereas the, when we get the heat of summer, it tends to kill the virus off a little bit. And then it also seems to move through with the migration of a lot of our wild birds, our waterfowl especially. And just for clarification for our listeners, uh, what would you consider to be an outbreak or how do you define uh, an avian flu outbreak? Well, we, we're, we're avian flu or, or the, the, the type A virus that it is, it's always naturally in the wild. It's generally in a, what they call a low path variety. And when it starts affecting the domestic birds, it transfers over to what they call highly pathogenic. And so we have different kind of levels of when we start checking for the uh, the virus. If we have five or more waterfowl in one area that we find dead, 
that at, sends us into testing mode. If we have any of our raptors, that puts us into kind of a mode of uh, testing that. And many people have heard about we had uh, 30 geese die, die on a lake up in the Northeast Kingdom. And uh, so obviously that shows us that we have a die off and that we need to investigate what's going on. Dr. Levine, I have not forgotten about you. Uh, will you tell us about your expertise when it comes to dealing with birds and avian flu? Sure. Um, like David, I work with a whole team of um, animal health staff that uh, have backgrounds as both farmers and um, we have two uh, veterinarians who, who work on our team, myself um, and the state veterinarian, uh, Dr. Kristen Haas. My background is as a farm vet. Um, like many vets in our area, I certainly had a mammalian uh a mammalian bias to my work, but we have diversified farms. So occasionally you're asked to see chickens too before this. And uh, I am, I am newer to the, to the team, but also this is the first time that avian influenza has hit our domestic birds um, in Vermont, especially the high path uh, outbreak that happened um, most recently was in 2014, 2015. And that, that, missed Vermont's um, domestic population. So we're we're all in this one together and we're really glad to have our partners um, over at Fish and Wildlife and, and we've worked with David very closely through all of this. So I'm glad he's virtually sitting next to me on this one. <laughs> we're all virtually sitting next to each other as we dive into what this is and how it's impacting Vermonters. And listeners, if you want to join the conversation about avian flu, uh, give us a call and share your thoughts or questions um, as we have this conversation, 1-800-639-2211. You can also send us an email to vermontedition at vermontpublic.org. Now, Dr. Levine, could you walk us through what avian flu is? Like, what are we talking about when we discuss avian flu? Avian flu is an influenza virus. So it's a, a class of viruses that can take a lot of different shapes. Avian flu happens to be an influenza A virus that is adapted to infecting birds. Um, that's kind of the, the basics of it. But right now, what we're concerned about is that this particular variety is a high pathogenic strain, which means that it is very contagious and it's quite deadly. So while there are influenzas that are out there in the world that never cause much of a problem, um, this one is. And uh, so that's why we're, we're focused so much on it right now. And how does this show up in uh, the wild and how do you measure infection rates? As it is in the wild right now, I'm going to... I was say, that might be a question for David. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> David, how are you measuring um, infection rates in the wild and uh, in birds? Right. Well, there's there's a national program that is tracking this. And when we start seeing unusual mortalities, because what people have to realize is, you know, wildlife, there's always a, what we call a background mortality. There's starvation, other diseases, and just, uh, you know, strikes with telephone wires, things like that. So when we start seeing unusual uh, amounts of mortality, we'll take what they call a cloacal and esophageal swab. And then that's sent to a lab to do a, an initial test to verify that it's, it's potentially the 
the H5N variety that, that is highly pathogenic. And then it's also sent on to a second lab for confirmation. And that's that's the primary testing that we do. We just um, you kind of we we have a surveillance plan that we set up within the state, um, just strictly for wildlife, and and we have thresholds that we we use to trigger when we're going to go out and test these animals. And Dr. Levine, I want to go back to you. And will you give us uh, and tell us what the symptoms are of avian flu? Sometimes the symptoms can be really dramatic in that the first thing you might notice is that your birds have died. Um, some of them are being affected that that quickly. On the other hand, some flocks have had very subtle symptoms being decreases in food or water intake. Um, commercial facilities can monitor that very closely and so they notice things that are that subtle. In between there, you can have decrease in egg production, um, nasal and um, ocular discharge, so um, swelling around the eyes, uh, difficulty breathing. This is a respiratory virus, so it looks like a respiratory virus. They they look they can look quite ill. So you can have everything from very subtle signs to the first thing you notice is death. And how does avian flu differ from human flu? Uh, based on what I'm understanding, it's almost like the virus is basically the same, like H1N1 is similar to what humans would get, correct? So avian, uh, no, excuse me, influenza viruses are a whole class of viruses, and they can affect all different species. There are human flus, there are dog flus, there are swine flus. Influenza is a, a catch-all term for a family of viruses. We classify those by some surface proteins, which is when you get the H's and the N's, and that helps us to differentiate which type. But it basically comes down to what has this virus adapted to infect? If it's a if this particular virus has mutated to infect birds, we call it an avian flu. If we call it, if it's adapted to infect people, we just tend to call it the flu. Um, so it's all the same family. It's just a matter of, of what it's adapted to infect. And can, I want to talk a little bit about how this virus spreads and how does virus, how do viruses transfer from animals to humans? Same way they transfer between each other. So we're looking at direct contact is a really big one. Um, with this flu in particular, we're seeing that uh, direct contact between domestic birds and wild birds has been a really big problem. Um, direct contact between people and their birds would be a way that many different diseases can be passed, not just flu, but also bacterial diseases. So it's always good to, to wash your hands and keep that in mind. Um, the other thing we talk about with uh, viruses um, are, are called fomites. So fomites are things like boots or equipment or your clothing that can carry virus particles from one point to the other because um, it just hitches a ride and joins you. And it's a respiratory virus. So there's also always the concern of sharing the same airspace can sometimes be enough. So you don't need to necessarily touch, but just breathing in the same air, you're, you can exchange virus that way. So th those are the three big ways that we worry about this one spreading. And David, let's go back to wildlife. Um, how is avian flu spread among wild birds? 
Wild birds, it's very similar to what Dr. Levine said. It's direct contact. So birds are migrating from one area to another, feeding in flocks. Uh, it's very highly concentrated in the fecal material of, of sick birds. And then it's released into the, under the feeding areas and into the water. They have um, direct contact with, as she said, uh, you know, saliva and nasal discharge. So birds moving from one area to another. And then, as she said, if somebody is feeding wildlife, which we don't recommend, if a sick bird comes in and contaminates that feed source or a bedding source that's there, then that can be passed on to the next bird that comes along that might be susceptible to it. And what are some of the birds you've seen affected by avian flu this year here in Vermont? Right. As you said, um, I kind of looked at update. We were up to about 85 that have been tested from citizens calling in to us. But so far in Vermont, uh, uh, the Canada goose is one, our wood duck, the mallard, the American black duck. And then we've also had uh, red-tailed hawks, uh, bald eagles, and turkey vultures that have been turned into us that were um, were dead and that we test that tested positive for the disease. Now, those seem like, for listeners at home, those seem like the bigger types of birds. What about the smaller ones? We have not had many of those uh, turned in, and, and it does seem to be affecting uh, the goose populations more and our, our uh, raptor populations. But those the raptors are also the ones that scavenge the dead waterfowl that they find along the waterway. So we think that may be a, a route along, you know, obviously turkey vultures. So, um, and songbirds are also harder sometimes to find. People don't see them and they're also scavenged very quickly by, you know, things like skunks and red fox that are in the area. So that's pr primarily the reason I think we're not seeing it in, in other birds. Now, Dr. Levine, um, I want to know, so Vermont is known for farming, particularly diversified farming. For those who are unfamiliar, what is diversified farming and how does that differ from farms in other parts of the country? So Vermont still farms um, in many situations where you'll have more than one thing that you farm. So it's common to have your dairy, but then maybe you'll have a flock of chickens that you have eggs that you either sell for yourself or in your farm stand, or you do produce and a, a variety of small herds of animals. Um, we do a lot of farms that just have mixed species where you have a couple of pigs and a couple of sheep and a couple of chickens. And so we, we still have that older, um, smaller, more localized model. Out West, you tend to have more mono farming. So you'll have one farm that all they do is dairy and they will farm dairy cows by the thousands and they'll have chicken barns and they'll have multiple chicken barns on one property, but that's all they raise or they just raise turkeys. Um, but here in Vermont, we, we tend to have smaller, more, more mixed populations on our farms. Um, and so we have a, a wider variety of people who end up being affected uh, by these diseases. So with a diversified farm, does that make it better or worse? I mean, maybe the, maybe it's indifferent uh, when it comes to the spread of a virus on the farm. It all has its pluses and minuses. Um, on the plus side, not all of your animals will be affected by everything. So um, that can be a good thing. On the other hand, there are certain diseases that can affect more than one species. Um, and so if you have 
multiple species on a farm and they're interacting with another, there are some diseases that can affect more than one species. So there's good things and there's bad things about it. It's just the way we farm. And how could this affect someone with just a few chickens in their yard? Just a few chickens and everyone from just a few to a few thousand all need to be worried about this. Um, This particular strain is causing high levels of mortality amongst our chickens and, uh, and turkeys nationally. We haven't had any turkeys yet in Vermont affected. Um, but, but also we're seeing uh, on the domestic side, the geese are being affected as well. Uh, so when you have a flock where you've got just a couple of chickens and a couple of geese and a couple of ducks and they're all roaming around together, they're all going to be affected. Now, as we discuss bird flu and its impact on our region, I imagine there are a lot of people with questions uh, that love to feed birds at home. So, uh, uh, actually, I'll start with David and just get your thoughts on, should people take their bird feeders out to stop the spread of avian flu? Well, our primary uh, recommendation there is because we know people are going to continue to feed birds is to routinely clean their bird feeders. Uh, ultimately, yes, I mean, I would take it down if we're having an outbreak of the flu and uh, not have your birds uh, congregate and feed on the same area. Uh, but the the best thing you can do right now is to clean that bird feeder regularly and try to eliminate that virus because it is susceptible to a lot of our detergents and antiseptics and and just drying, drying it out and, and washing the site. Now, this might seem like a really basic question, but when we're talking about cleaning it, I presume you don't want to touch it with your bare hand. So that would probably mean putting on gloves and using soap and water. That is the best thing is wear a set of disposable gloves and uh, to clean the area. Soap and water to start, you can use things such as Lysol and then, you know, wash it off afterwards. And there's even a a concentration of uh, like a third of a cup of bleach with with a gallon of water to to do that, and then obviously rinse it with clean water afterwards. Now, somebody wrote to us on the Canadian-American border and asks, uh, um, any idea if border crossing agents, both Canadian and American, are concerned with supermarket eggs? Uh, David, I, I'm going to let you take the first crack at that. Concern with, I know we, we did have restrictions at one point about bringing back uh, harvested ducks and geese and other animals uh, across the border, but with domestic uh, produce or eggs, I would let Dr. Levine jump in on that one. Dr. Levine, let's hear your thoughts. At this time, we don't think that supermarket eggs pose much of a risk. Um, As David said, eggs are, uh, excuse me, this virus is um, susceptible to uh, many of cleaning and disinfectant protocols and eggs that end up in our supermarkets have been washed. Um, so washed eggs are coming out of an area. Um, they are going to a supermarket, into a refrigerator and into a household. So they've been washed, they've been cleaned. Their risk for exposure to um, domestic birds is pretty minimal. At this time, it's not one of the things we're really that concerned about. And Dr. Levine, there are a lot of Vermonters who have a backyard flock, whether it's for food or as pets. What should they be doing to keep their birds safe? And what are the best ways to house chickens with their safety in mind? The number one thing right now is to keep 
domestic birds and wild birds separate. We would recommend ideally that that means that you keep your birds inside of um, a run that would even, if you can get a roof over the top of it, would be great. If you've got few enough birds that you can have a fully enclosed um, coop and run system, that will keep them the safest. If you've got too many birds to, to be able to put a roof on, still keeping them within a fenced in area um, that is clean of debris piles or away from ponds or water bodies that could attract wild birds or the, uh, the debris often attracts um, birds that are scavenging or feeding. Uh, you just want to do everything you can right now to keep wild birds and domestic birds apart. Other than that, I would say limit contact with your birds and birds you don't need to be in contact with. That seems like a funny way of phrasing it, but right now isn't the time to be going to your friend's house and hanging out with their birds and then coming back to yours. Right now is not the time to be inviting visitors over to feed your, <laughs> your domestic birds. Uh, right now, it's just about keeping contact to essential and minimum levels. And for some people, it might be emotionally difficult to confine their birds if they're always let their chickens roam free. Why do you think that is? I mean, we know we love our pets, but why is it hard for people to uh, confine them? I think it's because we... Uh, we get into one system. So there are lots of ways to raise chickens well. You can raise them outdoors and they can be seen running around. And that's a, that's a nice picture to take. Um, but those birds who are running around outside have risks to themselves as well. They're, they're more likely to be exposed to predators or, and be exposed to diseases. Whereas inside, they don't have quite that same image, but when they're inside, if they've got good ventilation, you can control their nutrition better. They have fewer disease exposures. They're protected from um, wild animal predation. So there are different management styles that have benefits on both sides. It's just that we get into one way of doing it and we get kind of used to that photographic moment and we forget that there are benefits to, to doing it the other way as well. And what does it mean, in your opinion, that more chickens are being thought of as pets? And what does that mean? Because these are livestock. So what does it mean that people are thinking of livestock the same way they think of their pets? It gets a little bit complicated because we love our pets and we love the animals that we depend on for our food and for our economy, but they're regulated very differently. And what we are getting into is the more pet stock is the term <laughs> we, friend, we, we like to use, the more livestock species that we treat as pets, the more we're getting into that uh, conflict between where our regulations say they're food animals and they need to be treated as if there's a potential that they could end up in the food system and being treated as pets that we want to do everything possible to keep safe um, and healthy. And so there's just a, there's a tension there because food animals are produced on farms and are treated with that ultimate goal of entering the food system at some point, but that's not how we, we see our pets. And that perception issue can sometimes cause uh, differences of opinions. 
And David, I'd like to continue this conversation uh, about around safety. As we head into spring and start to see spring migration, how do bird habits change and what does that mean for another outbreak of avian flu? Well, that's that's definitely what we'll be monitoring for all of us, uh, all the partnering groups throughout the state is we're going to start to see birds moving through here the end of March, maybe early April through June. And if, if people start seeing numerous birds dead in one location, you know, we would like to know that. And that's especially true, you know, around areas of agriculture, because that's uh, where we're worried about it right now is affecting uh, some of the commercial operations. We know we have avian influenza statewide and that uh, a numerous wildlife species can contract it. But uh, we do annual surveys of these populations, and we're, that's what we're doing to monitor them because there's no way to treat a wild population for the virus. So all we can do at this point is maintain quality habitat for them, monitor their population to see if they're having any type of an impact from the virus. Then hopefully that uh, habitat is there for them to recover after, after the die-off has occurred. Listeners, this hour we're discussing the avian flu and how it's impacting uh, Vermont's poultry and wildlife. If you have questions or thoughts and want to join the conversation, give us a call, 1-800-639-2211. I want to go to the phones, and I want to talk to Alex in Malone, New York. Alex, welcome to Vermont Edition. Uh, Hi, thanks for having me on. What's your question or comment? I just had a question for your guests, if there was any concern about the uh, the mass use of antibiotics with some of the bigger chicken farms. I know that I've read articles talking about how they really pound the chickens with uh, antibiotics, and I didn't know if any of that could be driving some of these uh, some of these viruses. Alex, thank you so much for your call. Let's start with David. I'll let, David, I'll let you take the first crack at it. We within wildlife, we have no indication that uh, that is the case. Uh, that's definitely more of a, a livestock production question. Um, yeah, go ahead, Doctor Doctor. <laughs> uh, no, I was just going to say that um, avian influenza is, is a virus and not a bacterium, so antibiotics aren't going to have any effect one way or the other on this virus. I do want to ask you, so last month, the Biden administration tested a vaccine that could be given to poultry to counter the current bird flu outbreak that has killed about 58 million birds, mostly in commercial poultry flocks. There was a first vaccine given to a poultry to this would be the first vaccine to be given to poultry to protect against the avian influenza in years. And so there's been some discussion about if this would work and what this would look like. Dr. Levine, I'd love to get your thoughts on a vaccine for chickens and poultry. Yeah, this is a decision that's going to be made on a national level. Um, as you said, it's going to be there are there are vaccines for many different diseases um, that we use in poultry and our other domestic species. Um, but we haven't had one for um, this strain of avian influenza. If we do start using it, it's going to um, have trade implications because it will affect our status as a country and our ability to trade with other countries um, as we do pretty commonly within our poultry industry. So this is a decision that's going to be made on a federal level. And as soon as the they decide 
to implement it, we'll start looking in how we can best use it for Vermonters, um, if that's the decision that they they choose to go with. Now, what I find interesting about this potential vaccine is that it doesn't impact wildlife uh, birds. It really just impacts the commercial birds. Um, David, is there any way that we can control the avian flu through wildlife? Uh, the best mean to help control the spread would be if you have dead birds on your property, and obviously this time of the year you cannot dig and bury those birds, but would be to collect the birds wearing rubber boots and, and gloves and double bag them and put them into the waste stream, you know, and during the summertime. That way they're not being scavenged, but to put any type of um, vaccination into effect into a wild population is just logistically not possible. And, and you know, not, not to mention the funds that it would take to, to do that. And Dr. Levine, I'd like you to weigh in on this. You um, were around when they tried to give deer birth control, and that didn't really work according to plan. Tell us about how that worked. I'm actually not sure what you're referring to. I, I'm not sure I'm the person that... Um... Okay. Uh, Never mind. Sorry. <laughs> we will we will move on. Um, and then as we talk, David, you talked about would people that find birds, how should they dispose of these dead birds, and what should they do when they start to see these dead birds on their on the yard? Right. If they have numerous dead birds, first thing we would like them to contact uh, the state, either the Fish and Wildlife Department or you know, Agency of Agriculture, so that we know that there's something going on because. Um, having the public out there is, is many more eyes to keep a, an eye out for this virus. And if, like I said, if you have a dead bird on your property and it's only a couple and you've spoken with somebody from the state, they may tell you that they're interested in testing it and that we'd come by, collect it and, um, and take some swabbings. And then we dispose of it. You know, if it's something that's on your property and you're going to take care of yourself again, we'd go back to making sure you're you're collecting it in a safe manner, you know, wear a mask if you feel uh, that way. You know, if it's an enclosed area, you know, if it's outside, there's less likelihood of being exposed to it. Wear gloves, double wrap it in your trash bags and put it into the waste stream. And then afterwards, obviously, take those biosecurity measures and good hygiene. Wash your hands, disinfect your your boots or whatever you're wearing. And if you do have backyard flocks or uh, pet birds, uh, clean your clothes separately away from those animals and have a separate set of clothing to do to work with both wild and uh, and your domestic birds. And Dr. Levine, would love to get your take on what, uh, if you'd like to add to that and what safety precautions people should be taking. Really similar, same, same notes, having dedicated clothes that you wear only in your domestic flocks and nothing else boots, coveralls, jackets um, that go to your coop and back and nowhere else. You don't want to wear your clothes that are going out and about in the world and then take them into your flock and vice versa. Um, also cleaning equipment regularly, just like your bird bath, you should be cleaning your, your domestic equipment. Um, and right now we all want to be good neighbors, but now's not the time to be sharing equipment between farms, at least not without making sure you're cleaning and disinfecting it really carefully. And Dr. Levine, what is the public health risk of bird flu right now as you see it and as you've read about it? I would always defer to our um, uh, health department and our public health colleagues uh, for questions like that. Um, but the CDC still qualifies this strain as being a low risk to human health. 
Um, but uh, for, for any more analysis than that, I would really talk to people who, who deal with human health on a more regular basis. And David, in the last 30 seconds, I want to just get your final thoughts. Well, I think the, the virus, as she said, uh, it's it's going to be common with us. Um, we've seen it in a number of other mammals in, in the region, but it has not uh, transferred over to humans. And as she said, the CDC and our local uh, Department of Health are the people for safety. Again, I just go back to that biosecurity issue, you know, good hygiene. I want to thank my guests today. We had David Sosville, Wildlife Management uh, Project Manager for Vermont Fish and Wildlife. David, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us on. We also had Dr. Caitlin Levine, um, the Assistant State Veterinarian. Dr. Levine, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your expertise. Thank you.